We are in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We are, as of last week, beginning to prepare a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, which of course starts right here in these verses and goes for about three chapters in your, in your New Testament in the book of Matthew. And today, still, as we did last week, is just a bit of an introduction, just kind of an overview and sort of to whet the appetite and to get some perspective for the sermon itself. But let's hear, first of all, the beginning and the Beatitudes of the sermon. Hear now the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, by way of introduction to this particular episode in the life of Christ, we noted that Jesus had been preaching throughout all the synagogues of Galilee. And there were approximately 50-something synagogues in the towns of Galilee during that day. So a meeting on once a Sabbath, you can imagine, it took about a year. So we're about a year or so into the ministry of Christ. And the theme of Christ's preaching had been the same as the theme of John the Baptist preaching. John the Baptist had been preaching for six months or more before Jesus showed up and was introduced by John as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus and John together preached the same message. Repent. Turn. They preached the book of Malachi, actually. Repent. Return to God. For the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the same thing, is at hand. It's near. It's imminent. It's upon you. It's coming. It's near. And both preached the same. The difference was John preached his message and then eventually finished his course. And having said that Christ must increase and he must decrease, John the Baptist ended up in prison and ended up being decapitated, being martyred for the cause of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Christ continued on in his preaching and in his teaching. And it brings us to the ministry wherein Christ was healing he was casting out demons, and he was teaching his disciples and preaching the gospel. Very, very busy time in the life of our Lord's what's called the early Galilean ministry. But now he shifts over to Capernaum, over toward the Sea of Galilee, and that's going to be kind of his headquarters for a while, and that's where our text picks up here. He's already called his disciples, and now the Bible says here, it's kind of interesting to note that he saw the multitudes, they were crowding around him. He went up on a mountain 
which of course is where he's going to be reiterating the law of Moses, but giving it far more depth and meaning and application than even Moses gave to us in the old covenant. He went upon a mountain. This is not the mount of the commandment. This is the mount of the beatitude. And it said he sat down, which is the style of teaching, the posture of teaching in the New Testament. Uh, we could reverse that maybe, and it'd be fine with me as I get older. Let me sit and let you. And I see more and more preachers are doing that. They're getting little stools and setting up on a little uh, uh, podium or something, and I kind of like that, but that's not what we do here. We have to stand. <laughs> we have to do what they told me in seminary, stand up, speak up, and shut up. <laughs> so that's what we do. But Jesus sat down, and he taught the multitudes. But it says, it's interesting. He says he had his disciples come to him. So whatever multitudes there may have been, whatever larger audience there may have been, ever how large the crowd may have been, we know at least one thing and it stands out and it's prominent and I think it's definitive that Christ was teaching his own disciples, those that had already begun to believe, those that had already worked with him, those that had already been with him as he cast out the demons, as he healed the sick and as he opened the eyes of the blind and as he eventually began to raise the dead. We see these things. Jesus' disciples were among his closest associates. So what other disciples, that is learners, there may have been in that congregation? He was teaching those who believed in him. In fact, we'll see as a matter of interpretation that this message just doesn't have anything to do with someone if they're not a real true disciple of Christ. You, you can't understand these teachings. You can't really make any attempt to follow this way of living if you do not have Christ in your life and the power of his spirit. And that's kind of what I want us to do this morning. It'll take just, just a moment or two and give kind of an overview of interpretation of these parables. There is no shortage of controversy in the Christian church from the earliest days when it comes to how do we understand these teachings of Christ. Uh, many of these are noted among the hard teachings of Jesus. And in many cases, if we read them carefully and take them seriously and take them literally in terms of the way they are expressed and the terms they're expressed, they're just about impossible. And what we're going to do in the weeks to come this spring is go through them one by one, each beatitude and each teaching concerning the uh, things that Christ is telling his disciples. So let me just survey for you quickly. This is, uh, I apologize, but this may sound more like a little bit of a lecture than a sermon, but there's been several assortment of ideas and they're not necessarily um, mutually exclusive. Uh, different perspectives, different way of looking. And a lot of it has to do with just contextualizing what is the kingdom of God and who is in the kingdom and what's the nature of the kingdom and when is the kingdom of God manifested. And in summary, we'll say the kingdom of God has come in Christ, in the body of the king. It's here among us as Christ reigns from his throne at the right hand of the Father and rules in our hearts. We see the kingdom of God, as we saw last week, is individual. That is, it comes to each and every soul. 
It was totally different than the national expectations of Israel in Jesus' day. And Jesus begins to tell us the kingdom of God is at hand. He says the kingdom is not of this world. He says the kingdom of God is within you. He talks about entering into the kingdom. And then he has numerous parables that teach us various aspects of the kingdom, its importance, its mysterious nature. Uh, it's a potential to grow from a very tiny, small mustard seed-like size into a great uh, uh, tree and a great uh, operation. It, its extensiveness, how it goes over all the earth, et cetera, et cetera. The Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount uh, are not easy to understand and not easy to interpret. Uh, we can get kind of a Sunday school grasp on it, but that'll help us just so much. Fundamentally, it drills right down to the very essence of what biblical spirituality is all about. The bottom line is that only a genuine, blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, what we would call a true Christian, can even approach this life, which we call essential Christianity. And that's what we'll be fleshing out as we go along. But let me just hit you with a couple of these uh, uh, these interpretations. They're in no particular order. They're not in historical order. They're not in philosophical order. They're not all necessarily right or necessarily wrong. I just want to give you an awareness because when we get into the interpretive nature of this, it'll, it's going to be a joy uh, this year to, to work through this material because it's going to bring the law and the gospel together uh, as we've never seen it uh, before in any other block of New Testament teaching. Uh, one of the um, observations on this is made by a an outstanding observer of history and, and uh, social and societal life, Tolstoy. Tolstoy said that what he sees here is a utopian society, a new social order. What he sees here is if we do the, about five things that come out of these beatitudes, that is the suppression of all anger in each and every person, that might be enough right there. <laughs> um, it's the suppression of anger. Anger comes and works the gamut all the way from fear to grief and everything in between. It's just, it's just something, frustrations, anxieties. But it's the suppression of all anger. Chastity. Oh, my goodness, we don't want to go there. But that's what is called for. Absolute chastity. Purity. Virginity. Marriage. One flesh marriage, male and female marriage, oaths, no oaths, taking of oaths, that's a relationship to the larger society and whatever civil government may be formed, non-resistance, and that is how a population consents to be governed and how it uh, comports with that consensus and obeys laws and the kinds of laws that are established, and love of enemies. That's been the hardest thing for me to grasp in my lifetime because my enemies are enemies for good reason. They're wrong. <laughs> They're evil. They are absolutely no redeeming qualities in my enemies. And I have every right, in fact, maybe and not only a compulsion, but a requirement to hate them, to despise them, to see them destroyed, to see them vacated. And yet, what does it mean to love enemies? 
And Tolstoy suggests that if mankind, each and every one of us, would do these things, it would be a new social order. There's not anything wrong in that thinking. I'm not sure all the thinking goes together, but that, that's something to that. Various interpretations. Here's one. You may recognize this one. That is that what they're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount is the perfect rule or pattern for the Christian life. It is, in effect, a new law, that is, the law of Christ, going beyond the old law, that is, the law that came through Moses. But always remember this, that God Almighty issues the law. Moses was a mediator of a covenant containing the law of God. Jesus is a mediator of a covenant that is sealed with his blood. Both Moses and Christ are mediators. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. And they mediate, but it's the covenant of God. But how is it worked out in its mediation? And this particular view says it's for true disciples. It's for the regenerate. And it's for the regeneration. The regeneration is a word used a couple of times in the, in the Bible to indicate the new that which has been regenerated, the new person, the new creature in Christ, but also the new heaven and the new earth. The regeneration is what involved, is involved in these things. Here's another one. You may recognize this one. That the Sermon on the Mount is an uncompromising expression of divine righteousness directed toward all of humanity. This is what God expects of all of his creatures. Insofar as we are all in the image of God, God expects us to live up to that image. He gives us one little detail. Be holy, for I am holy. And our sense of justice derives from his righteousness and his justice, etc., etc. Here's another view. This one you may recognize is very popular in the Protestant church, especially in the progressive or the liberal side that sort of see the, the, the commandments of God this way, that actually what this amounted to was an interim ethic for early Christians who believed that the end of time was right upon them and the imminent demise of all things were, was coming quickly and that they were going to be under severe persecution. They were going to undergo intense trial and then Christ was going to return. It was going to be over. So there was a sense in which this was kind of an interim ethic. There wasn't going to be very long a period of time when these rules would apply and they would apply during that particular time. And, and so the conclusion is these teachings are too radical or too difficult for us in our times. And there's a sense in which they're too noble. The standard is too high of what man should be. However, we let this serve as an ideal. That is, we strive to improve our soul. These are goals and lofty ideals set forth by God for us to try to live up to them. And the measure to which we live up to these goals is the measure to which we are accepted in pleasing God. Can you recognize that one as being a little bit contrary to the gospel we preach? But that's a very popular view. And nobody, we're all human. Nobody expects anybody to be perfect. But here these goals are as they're set out in the Beatitudes and beyond with marriage, divorce, oath-taking, alms-giving, prayer, all of these other things that are set out in this particular sermon. These are lofty standards, and we, we admire these standards, but none of us 
live up to them, and none of us can expect to live up to them, but we need to try. And we need to get partial credit at the judgment day when they know God's going to grade on a curve anyway. And that's our hope for heaven. Here's a view that these demands are too strict and they're purposely exaggerated by Christ to show the failure of the human soul to live up to God's standards to move us to repent and believe. This is an intensification of the use of the law as Paul outlines in Galatians. That is the law as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. You can imagine this arises out of reform circles Historically, this particular view says that, that Moses is made even more demanding upon a person. The law of God is even more demanding, and it's certainly set up in righteous standards like that, but the view is simply a good gospel uh, preparatory work in our hearts, and that's to make us to understand that we can't even begin to keep God's law, and we look for some other place to find our salvation. We look to another we look to a righteousness that's outside of ourselves, what is called in early reform circles an alien righteousness, something from somewhere else. And so we look there. Well, you see, the, the Sermon on the Mount uh, has several um, interpretations. In fact, I got one more here, then I'll wrap it up. No, I got two more. This view says that it's great moral imperatives, it's absolute ethics for the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is now. So this is what God expects his people to do now. And another view, as you might expect, on another poll says the entire Sermon on the Mount, the ethics contained in them are not for us now, but this is setting forth kingdom values for a future earthly millennial kingdom after Christ returns. Well, there it is. That helped. <laughs> well, it does in a way because there's a little bit of truth to each one of these and we'll point those out as we go. But the actual truth is that the Sermon on the Mount is what is known as didache. That's the teaching as opposed to the kerygma. The kerygma is the gospel of saving grace wherein God has provided all of these things, the means of forgiveness in all of our shortcomings, failures, sins, and iniquities in Christ Jesus. But then he has also supplied in the third person of the Trinity another gift in addition to the gift of his son, the gift of his spirit who comes to indwell us and to empower us. And as Paul says in Romans 8, that the righteous fulfill requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit and that's what we hope to see this is the ethical life of the Christian this is how we are to behave in the world you say Ron this doesn't uh, comport so much with the ethics of the world or the perspective of the world the worldview of the world no it doesn't no it doesn't we who are of the kingdom of God are of a different order we're of a different sort, and God is giving us how he wants us to live. As Augustine said, it's the perfect rule and a pattern for the Christian life. It is, in effect, a new law. It's the law of Christ. It's the uncompromising standard of God's righteousness, and all men are liable and accountable to it, and that's the basis of their judgment, and believers alone with the Holy Spirit can keep it. 
It is doing what Christ said. Christ said, go and, and, and make disciples, teaching them to observe all, thing, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Where did these commandments come from that Jesus taught and commanded his disciples and that we're supposed to disciple the nations with? Right out of the Sermon on the Mount. Right out of the Sermon on the Mount. We've set the table. Hopefully we got something cooking in the kitchen that will bring to, the, to light. And I want us just to enjoy this time, uh, the next few weeks of going through this, to see the, the wonderfulness of the righteousness of God, to see our awful need and desperate need of him. Learn the gospel as never before. That is, we must trust in Christ alone for salvation and his finished work on our behalf. And then learn the law, the true law, the new law. The new wine and new wineskins that enables us to walk in paths of righteousness for Christ's namesake.